Um, and just appreciating uh, the prayers here as, as Matthew has uh, kind of wound us down and brought our attention to this God who brings us into these worlds of tension where there's celebration and anniversaries and excitement surrounding youth events. And then um, there's still cultural things that are happening um, that we want to stop and, and lament and lift up to God in specific ways. And so since the last time I was up here, there was... Um, at least one, if not two more um, shootings in California. There's three total. I'm not introducing anything, you know, real recent, but it's just been since I was up here, and we mentioned the first one, and since then also um, a young man, Tyree Nichols, um, has been killed as well. And so I'm just kind of wrestling with this idea of what do you, what do you even do with that? How, for those of you who have been around for a long time, um, there's this, there's this um, way in which we have... Uh, addressed things and stopped and prayed and lamented and, um, uh, you know, had liturgical call and response type of responses. There's ways in which, um, you know, we've done these creative kind of things. I have a friend who wrote a lament book specifically dealing with things like this, and we've read poems, and I even was scrolling through that thinking, man, we've already done that one. We've already lamented that lament. We've already done that call and response, and it's just like, um, you know, if I'm honest, I just didn't know quite what we were supposed to do with it. And so I just want to take that to God um, and allow us this moment of at least acknowledgement. Um, but, but, but as we get ready to preach what we're about to preach, um, you know, and, and, and the work we've done in, in understanding what majority and minority cultures and how they interact um, and the power structures there, just come at this with a level of reverence that asks God to um, give us an appropriate response that doesn't just rescue us from the tension, that doesn't just try to get us out of um, you know, sadness, um, and doesn't necessarily even just incite anger, but, but calls for justice in a way um, that is gospel-driven. And so would you pray with me this morning? And so, Father... Um, as before we move any further, before we get to um, um, today's teaching, Lord, we, we ask for you to settle into our hearts. Um, one, that there is so much uh, violence still on this earth. In fact, the flood, um, one of the one reasons, one of the, the only named causes of what caused uh, you to feel that you need to cleanse the world was violence. So God, we long for a day when violence is no longer seen in our streets, when it was no longer seen on the news, when it is no longer seen for some of us in our front yards. So God, we pray for justice. We pray for you to allow waters to flow down like a river that would cause what has, wronged, uh, what has been wronged to be made right. And Father, I just pray that we would be active agents of reconciliation, that as we interact with the world on the other side of Genesis 3, with the disruption and the disordering and all the different things that have taken place, the tragedy, uh, natural disasters and unnatural disasters, and the way humans will sin against humans, God, would you help us to be people that are kingdom, people that are the way the Garden of Eden was before it fell, the way that you would like things to be, Lord, but give us an imagination for what that even is because we're so immersed in the violence. So let us love you by loving others well. 
Let us love you by stepping in where pain is not our own, but we can shoulder the burden. Let us be comforted when the pain is our own, that there is a healer that we walk towards. So Father, we lift these things up right now and we ask for this right now in Jesus' name, amen. Um, well, thanks again, you all, for your prayers. Um, and I uh, just wanted to say uh, that as we, uh, we're moving forward um, in this series, but I just felt like there was something, um, even in particular to this, that, that informs uh, even the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. Um, and so we're gonna be in Mark 2. If you want, you can go ahead and open your Bibles there, Mark 2. Um, but before we get to that, um, I was going to mention this quick little uh, story, something that happened to me. Um, some of you uh, know that... Uh, well, some of you probably don't, um, that my wife and I spent some time, um, what would have been like kind of post-crisis New Orleans after Katrina, many people would consider like a mission field in that moment. Um, and, and obviously all places are a mission field, but it was definitely in a different kind of situation than normal. Um, but what you may not know is when somebody gets sent out like that or to join up with a, how, uh, sorry, with a um, church plant, which was what we were doing out there, um, there are this set of like, things they ask you to do to make sure that you're in a good place to do those things, uh, to be a part of a ministry like this. Either the intensity or just like church plants in general are difficult. And so they have this organization called Church Planting Assessment Center, CPAC for short. Now, I know some of you here have maybe even been through it. Uh, it was my first taste of the Midwest because this one in particular was hosted by a church, uh, Christ Community Church. Just um, There's a few different multi-sites in um, Illinois, but I think mostly in Chicago area. And so as you're there, it's this very... Um, this very nerdy situation where you are being given case studies and uh, you're putting groups to try to accomplish certain things to see how you work in teams to kind of work out your, your gifting and your ministry. And so I was doing music and leading worship and then I had to give like a little uh, talk because I was going out there to do worship in youth. Um, and there's, there's um, literally people with clipboards that are watching over you and you say something and you watch them go, hmm, and then make a note and you're like, whom good or whom bad? Well, what was that about? And they're just kind of like floating around, taking notes and, and, and observing things that are happening. Now, I didn't go into this with any kind of cost-benefit mentality, um, but when I think back, there was a risk that I was taking um, because this is something that happened uh, that caused a little bit of a disruption as to whether or not they were going to approve me for this. Uh, I started this process, decided I was going to go, signed up for that, and all of this situation, I had not even met my wife. Never met this woman, Emily. And by the time I'm standing in front of this assessment, I am engaged to this woman. There are months between these two situations. And so as a part of not just CPAC, but I was going to be under the authority of one of the most like, kind of well-known pastors in this area. He's coming out of seminary hot. I knew none of this. I, he was just some guy. I didn't know. I was just working for this guy. He's the pastor. But in this situation, he's done so good in seminary. And people are like, if anyone can plant a church in New Orleans, it's this guy. And I had no clue that the whole denominational kind of framework was paying attention to what this guy did, and now I'm just coming in underneath that. 
So not just are all these people assessing me, but there are the main people in charge of Stadia, this church planning organization, of CPAC. The people who run these events are paying very close attention to what I'm doing. And I get there and realize this. And we get to the final assessment. You got to take like, like psych evaluations and all these different things. Um, and so naturally, as I get to the end of it, a guy by the name of Tom Jones, not the singer, different Tom Jones, some of you know him, kind of builds his reputation off of being this gruff character, and that's how he's handling me, very gruff. And I'm the whole time, just the whole time, just thinking, I don't know I'm going to make it through this. This guy is, like, they're really, like, the microscope is on, and we get to the final moment where they're telling me whether or not I'm passing, if I'm approved, or if I'm not. And so I'm sitting there, and there's Tom Jones and his wife, Debbie, and they're sitting at a long table. And I don't remember if this was my imagination, if it was really real, but it felt like there was, it was a dark room with a spotlight just on me. And I'm like, uh, you know, trying to like kind of fake it till you make it. Like, I'm good. We're good. We're cool. Everything's good. I'm all right. And he looks at me, and he said, hey, I, there's a problem that we really need to address, and it's, it's this. Like, you're engaged to somebody, to be married. Like, yeah, that's, that's what an engagement is, Tom. <laughs> What's your point? Uh, and when we started this process, if you were going to be that serious with someone, we should have known who they were and they should have been here so they could be assessed. And if you didn't know who that person was when you started this process, then this is too short of a time for you to know this person and it's sending up some red flags for us. And then they kind of like do these other evaluations. He finally looks, he's like, man, I'm really struggling with some of these things. He looks at me, he says, in fact, this is one of the, like one of the hardest decisions we've had to make in this organization. Um, and I, I think it was an incredibly stupid thing for you to do. And he just lets it settle. Now, if you know this guy, he's, this is his personality. He kind of likes to do this stuff. He likes to be this guy in the room. And then all of a sudden, Debbie, his wife, grabs his hand, looks up at me and smiles. and says, but it's also one of the most romantic things that I have ever seen happen at CPAC in my life. And it was like, tension, tension. Oh, thank you, Debbie. And he finally, you know, you could tell it was a good cop, bad cop. He loosened up and he's like, we're gonna let you know you've been approved. Um, and uh, not, not as a church planner, but as a, as, a, as a person who would come out and uh, be support staff for this thing. And, and so as I was looking back at, you know, just this teaching today, I was trying to think of a, a moment. Hey, and, and, and let me say this, like, I've been married for 16 years, so take that, Tom, right? Like, I, I don't know you still after 16 years, but I know my wife and I's marriage is, is working well, uh, and that was a wise decision. And so, um, in, in, in hindsight, one of the things that I think was important for me to recognize is that um, and I, I want to I post this to you kind of almost in like a formulaic way to think about it. But I was in love with my wife so much that I was willing to risk my future employment so that I could marry her. Now, now there was a, catch that there's a motivation, there's a drive behind that, and there was a barrier that I had to overcome in that situation. And so think of this. I want you to think about a time in your life when maybe you took a risk. Some sort of motivation was behind that because you wanted to see an outcome take place. And so think about it. Are you, insert any motivation you want, enough to risk something in order to gain an outcome? 
And I wanna clarify, so motivation, have you ever been passionate enough? Have you ever been desperate enough? Have you ever been sad or angry enough about something? Zealous enough, excited enough that it pushed you over that barrier of whatever the risk was that you put something on the line so that you could accomplish some kind of goal or achieve an outcome on the other side. And in many ways, what I want us to do is to take that idea and apply it to our faith today. That faith is always a risk. In fact, I knew this guy, he was a mentor uh, to me for a short while, and he said, faith is a very simple thing. It's spelled R-I-S-K. And it is always going to require that. Otherwise, it's not actually a step of faith. And so when we think about moments in our life, when we think about uh, 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 things that drive us and decisions that we make as a church, as a community, Faith is this risk step, and we have to have something cultivated enough, some sort of motivation that burns hot enough to get us over into that and try to figure out if we can accomplish this outcome. And so the story that we're gonna look at today is a little, I think it's familiar if you've been around church circles for a while. It comes from Mark chapter two. Go ahead, I know I asked you to turn there, so you should be quick. Mark two, starting in verse one, and we will read one through 12. Mark one, one through 12. And I want you to think of this formula. What are the motivations? What's the risk at stake? And what's the outcome that is attempting uh, to be happening, that is being attempted? So it says this. A few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So, so picture, if you can, in your head, these events that are taking place. The narratives are super fun because you get a chance to really conceptualize what's happening in your head. And so activate your imagination. They're in Capernaum, which is likely the house of Peter and Andrew. If you remember, there's a point earlier in the story where, uh, where Jesus comes and heals their mom, and it looks like he has transferred oikos. We've taught about this before, but he has changed households. Um, and in fact, his family, his mom and his brother are looking for him because they think that he has lost his mind. And so now he's relocated to Capernaum where he is living at Peter and Andrew's house. And Jesus seems uh, to live here at different times in his ministry and he has enough of a reputation, enough of a, a following out there that people are coming around in droves. They want to hear his teaching. They wanna hear the authority by which he teaches. They wanna get healed. They're getting delivered from demonic oppression. And in the case of this crowd, they have gotten so large that there is no room for anyone else to come in and to meet or even come near to Jesus. And verse three continues, it says this. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Now stop for just a minute. Again, activate the imagination. Have a concept in your mind of what we're looking at. These men were, and I'm quoting, digging through someone's roof. What do, you, what, do you, what do you think of, like do you have shingles in, in your mind? Do you have tiles in your mind? In the Southwest, in Phoenix area, where from, it's like these clay tiles that you would have to dig through. Think about your roof and what it's made of, and what visual comes to mind. I wanna show you what an ancient Israel, just a typical ancient Israel house would have looked like during this time. You see the roof there, it's got straw covered. 
You got wooden slats. There's usually a type of clay or wood, uh, sorry, clay or mud brick wall that is added to that with, with uh, mixed in with the straw. You can see the ladders and sometimes there were stairs built into the sides of buildings so that they could get up to the top because the roof was flat and commonly used very similar to the way we use a deck today. So think about all the things you use your deck. You bring people over, uh, you entertain them outdoors when the weather is nice, you grill on your deck, you have seating around your deck, you entertain people because it's a good way to enjoy the outdoors and still have some of the regular creature comforts. So, so, so think about this. The, the top floor, the roof of this house would have been treated like a dwelling, inhabita- a, a, a type of habitation, a dwelling that they would use on a regular basis. Access is not a problem. Access is not a problem. What would have been a, a problem, though, is that it was built in order to suspend multiple people, maybe an entire family. So this wasn't just something real easy. It's like you think of a thatch roof where you're just pulling away a couple of bushes and then like kind of figuring out. That's not what's going on here. You have this, this, um, this structure that was meant to hold people as they walked on it and hung out on top of it. And so above Jesus, as he's down inside, just above him would have been this thatch roof made of a mixture, several inches of clay or mud, brush, reinforced them by the wooden beams that you see up there. So this is not an easy endeavor. Access to the roof, they would have been able to get up there, but getting down into it would have required, very specifically, as the scripture says, a digging into it from the top down through each and every single layer as they were able to go. Now, if you've ever said to yourself something along the lines of this, I'd do anything for my friends. Like, like we're, t- we're tight, I'm, I'm ride or die. Like, I don't even know what context you have for that phrase, if it's as literal as it might say, or if there's a line somewhere in there where you're like, well, I mean, I, within reason, like ride or die, or like, or like this is within reason, like there's limitations to that die phrase that I've added to it, but that's a phrase people throw out all the time. And, and if you have been somebody who's like, man, I am, I am a loyal person to my friends. I would do anything for them. I would wreck somebody's roof, dig down into it, and lower them down on a mat. No, no you would not. And why do I know that? Because you are all very reasonable people. I know you well enough to know that you're reasonable, we're all very reasonable people, and and so the idea that because you would be going into someone's house um, uh, and you would not think, oh, here's a stranger, let me cut a hole, dig a hole, break into the top of his house, that's a very unreasonable action to take. This is a very unreasonable thing for people to do. You wouldn't have even thought that that was an option on the table were that reasonable. It's just not something you think of. And so consider the moment when this group of guys is brainstorming a situation and one of the guys is like, hey, you know what? I've got it. Light bulb goes off. He's staring at the roof and they're like, hey, what do you want to do? And, and, and as he's looking, he's like, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go down from the roof. Why are we going up to the roof and coming down from the roof? How, how is that even going to happen? We're going we're gonna to break a hole in it. We're going to lower you down. And, and, and the unspoken miracle here is that three other guys were like, yeah, good idea. Let's, I, I think, I mean, I might have a pickaxe or something at home. I mean, maybe not. I've been in dorm rooms too where guys 
get together and think up some really dumb things, and no one seems to think, well, let's not do that. Now, I don't want to overstate this, but I want you to understand what they're doing does not make sense. Not in the context that they're living in, not in the context that we're living in. None of this is anything that anybody would think, I'm supposed to do that because we're reasonable and practical people. And, 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 and they know what reasonable and practical is. Why? Because they're watching an entire crowd of reasonable and practical people stand right in front of them. A bunch of people who are cool, calm, collective, collected, attentive, They are not destroying other people's property. They are politely listening to a riveting parable that will inevitably probably convict them on the other side of it. They are not interrupting the rabbi who is speaking in front of them. They are not jumping in front of the line but waiting their turn. You're not making this huge scene in the middle of this moment where this man is teaching. And then all of a sudden, you're Jesus and you hear scraping above you. Now, one of the cool things about this is that Jesus knows everything, so he's pretending not to hear the scraping probably in, in the midst of that because he wants the full effect. The crowd needs to really feel this moment. And so you probably had some of the, the dirt particles coming down, dust, chunks of this roof and, and debris are hitting the floor. Then before you know it, you look up and there is an entire man a whole human being being dropped down on a mat right in front of you, Mission Impossible style, just flat. There he is. All right, if you're in this story, we are probably the crowd and not the demolition, not the demolition crew up on the roof. So that's kind of something I want us to, to, to picture. Like we love to read the best of ourselves in all of these situations and to think we're the hero in every story. And I wanna submit to you that you are probably the group of reasonable people quietly waiting your turn, hanging out, not the demolition crew, because we tend to be, by our own definition of maturity, reasonable and practical people, giving the proper measured response that would be deemed in a situation like that. Now, if I'm honest, I would even maybe be kind of irritated. I could be in that crowd and actually see this all happening and begin to become uh, 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 critical to what was happening in front of me, right? There's this conventional crowd watching all of this happening, and they're thinking to themselves, hey, man, the line starts outside. Go, what are you doing right now? There's, I got here early so that I could have a good seat for the show, I got up early, I walked out here, I wanted to make sure that I was here before anyone got here so I could have front and center seats to watch Rabbi Jesus, Yeshua, speak this morning. Can you believe this? You ever been in those situations where you're in a grocery line and like a coalition begins to build and it's not usually verbal, uh, you know, it's more like grunts, like, hmm, oh. And they're all agreeing, like they're, they're mad at the clerk or whatever it is. And have you ever been the person to disrupt that? Like, oh, you know, I guess I think they're just having a rough day. It's cool. I can wait. I'm not in a hurry. They never like that person in the situation. You want this coalition. I could imagine them sitting there looking at each other. So I like, oh, these, these people, look at this guy. Just how much damage do you think they just dealt, dealt with? And they're looking back and forth and in agreement that this is not something that should happen. So, so, so. How should we respond? Well, check out what Jesus does. Verse four. It says, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above. 
Jesus by digging through it, and when they lowered the mat the man was lying on, when Jesus saw their what? What is the word there? When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, say that with me, son, your sins are forgiven. You see, Jesus doesn't see a disruption. He doesn't see a lack of reasoning. He doesn't even attempt to give weight to the impractical nature of what they have just done. Like if you were gonna go through all that trouble and break this person's house, you could have just edged your way through the group. That probably would have been an even easier way to do this. So Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't get angry. He's not annoyed that he was interrupted in the middle of whatever thing he was teaching. He does, and he doesn't even see anything that they're doing as disobedience or an inconvenience at all. Jesus sees one thing, their faith. And he talks to them and gives them this title, son, your sins are forgiven. In fact, you can even see it in Jesus as he says something like that. It's not even not a critique of them. It is an affront to the casual faith of all of the crowd sitting around him. He's not, not just not punishing them, but in his approval, in the way that he speaks to them, he gives such a level of, of approval that it actually critiques the crowd because it tells them that they needed to turn up their faith. Now let's jump back into this story. Jesus hasn't healed anyone quite yet. If you catch it, what did he do? He just forgave the sins. So he hasn't healed anyone yet, but there's this other group in the crowd whose response... <laughs> isn't just casual, um, it's not just a, a, a commonplace kind of faith, it's actually more of a critical interest in Jesus. They have come there for the purpose of tearing Jesus down. And so verse six says this. <coughs> I apologize for that. <clears throat> it says this, verse six. <clears throat> now some teachers of the law we're sitting there. I want to read that again. Listen to the people in the audience. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking, just thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Now, this has to be one of the best moments in Jesus' entire ministry as it pertains to the teachers, the scribes, the Pharisees, and all of the lawmakers because they haven't even opened up their mouths. And you think Jesus is almost like giving you that teacher look. He's got that eyebrow kind of looking over at him because he knows what they're thinking. And they're over there like, but I didn't, I didn't say anything. Did you say anything? I didn't. I didn't say, it must have been that guy, he ran out the back, he said something on his way out the door. And Jesus, just by his understanding of this situation, possibly through his divinity, he knows what's going on and he calls them out. Why are you thinking these things? The segment of the crowd in this group, there's some that are casual, but there's some who are critical in there. 
They're standing there looking for a reason, predetermined that they are going to find something wrong with whatever Jesus is saying, and here he uh, is accused of blasphemy. Now, why would they call him a blasphemous person? Why would they consider him blasphemous? Well, if you're like me, I tend to just read that and I breeze right past it, right? That, that phrase, son of man, is actually a really difficult one to deal with, but according to Jewish tradition, recorded in scriptures like Isaiah, um, and then again in a couple different times in the Psalms, there is this authority that only God has to absolve sins. The teachers teach this. So what he's doing is in opposition to the things that they teach. And, and consider this, they also don't have an imagination. We get to look back at the scriptures at the New Testament and read about Jesus's life. If you don't have an imagination for God being human, for him being flesh and blood, that, that, that God's presence could be inhabitable and touchable and actually right there in material presence. If you don't have any kind of context for that, then of course you're gonna look at this person and be like, what do you think you're doing? But there is one tradition that lends credibility to this. It's a name of God and it puts flesh on the spirit physicality to the presence of God. And so for Jesus's critics, what he's gonna do in this next little spot before we close up is two things. He's gonna, what I'm gonna call the old proclaiming name trick. He's gonna proclaim something, then he's gonna call upon a name and he's going to get them caught up in their own trap. Verse nine says, which is easier, this is Jesus speaking, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, first, he makes a proclamation, a proclamation in the form of a question. He says, which is easier? And he gives them two choices, A or B, to make a proclamation of authority that this man's sins are forgiven, which is not provable. He can make a statement all day long. If you've ever watched The Office, you, you can't just file for bankruptcy by screaming out, I file bankruptcy. It doesn't actually have any actionable part to it. So whoever you are, Jesus, Yeshua, you just saying that doesn't prove anything. You can say anything you want, but this thing tells me that you think you're God. So that's option A. Option two is, or is it easier for me to proclaim this man's sins are forgiven or to heal this person and make a show of power which actually has self-evidence built into it? The man will either get up and walk or not. So which one is easier to do? Well, in some ways, it'd be easier to just say something that you can't prove, right? In other ways, you're making a statement that says that you're God and you know that that's gonna ruffle some feathers. And so this is what Jesus does. He makes an authoritative proclamation first because it surfaces in their heart that they are critics. The thing that Jesus says causes them to reveal themselves and their hearts in front of these people. It's on display now because he said your sins are forgiven and now he knows what their hearts are thinking. But then what he's gonna do next is to show proof of the power that he has at his disposal. Because if he can do that as like a one-two punch, they have to recognize the first. If they say the first has the ability to do the second, he proclaims the first. If he can actually display the power of the second, they have to sit in the possibility that he could be both of what he just said. So this is what Jesus uh, does here. 
Let me, let me real quick, the son of man, um, this phrase, this name that he claims here, is, uh, it, it comes from the Old Testament, comes from the book of Daniel, and, and basically it just says this very quickly, um, that, that in my vision, this is Daniel 7, 13, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man, meaning a human being. So we have one tiny little thread wherein in the Old Testament, this title, the son of man, is being used to describe the possibility that God at some point maybe might, could just possibly look like a human being at some point. Just this tiny thread. And so any one of us could be a son of a man, but by putting that definite article in front of it, this is what we're referring to. This became this title. Oh, no, no, that's the son of man. And everyone knows, oh, that's the reference to Daniel, that there is this possibility that flesh and blood could be God. And so this prophecy is stating that the Messiah will at some point have a human appearance, some kind of appearance that becomes a title. And so when he both claims this thing, he makes a proclamation, then he turns back and he calls himself the son of man saying, even in your own scriptures and in your own teaching, you have to admit that it's possible. Human and divine can come together. Okay, so that's, that's what I'm calling the old proclaim and name trick. That's what Jesus just did. He's got them caught. The trap is set. The only thing left to do is to see if he can actually put a display of power on. Let's read it. it said, so he, Jesus, said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they were praising God, <clears throat> saying, we have never seen anything like this. All right, so, so I'm not a chess person, but it's like, check. And then he just lets them walk into the trap. Okay, check, mate, it's all over. Now, now of course, we don't know how they respond. Did they repent and come to believe in Jesus, the, the critics? Um, did others come to know Jesus? It's, it's not even, we don't know. Maybe they continue to dig their heels and, and deny it. Like, no, 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 even, even if you can heal people, that doesn't mean you're God. And so what I want you to do today as we think about this, as we respond, as we kind of step back and internalize this, I, I ask you to think about this formula, this motivation idea, this, this formula where there's a risk involved and the outcome that is being desired. And so think about all of the different people involved in what was just happening. There was a motivation on behalf of these guys to do something in order to gain an outcome. And now, now, now step back and think of all the different characters. We had two different types of people in the crowd, the conventional faith people and then the critical people. Then we have this party crashing group of people with the paralyzed man. And then we have the son of man, the source and the healer. Which one do you most identify with as you read through this? Which one do you tend to find yourself being. The one of the group of the interest who's critical, the teachers um, here, they're looking for reasons to discredit Jesus and to accuse him. And maybe you find yourself in a place where you're attempting to do that. Maybe you've had enough pain or church trauma, you know, the, the term deconstruction is, you know, well-worn at this point. And so maybe you're walking into this with this critical idea, just determined not to see the possibility that God is who he says he is. And so for you, I, I pray nothing but healing and uh, for a softening of the heart. 
You see them come intentionally. This is, there is a, uh, these are, these are the, 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 the religious elite, right? These are the people that think they know what's going on. And so there is a term where maybe you've been in this walk with God and you think you have all the answers. But in the end, these are the people who don't have eyes to see. Now there's this other group, the conventional, which is where I think most of us probably fall. They're in the house, they're listening to the teaching, they're being polite, they are there and, concern, excuse me, um, and concerned with their experience with Jesus and their backs are turned on all of those outside who actually have needs. Let me, let me say that one more time. They're there listening, they're polite, they're hearing the teaching, but their backs are turned on those outside who actually have needs. In fact, one of the problems here is, and that we have to recognize here is that by being the reasonable and practical person inside of the room, you just might actually find out that you are keeping the most needy people away from Jesus. You're the barrier. You are standing in the way of the healing that needed to take place because had they not been there, they could have just come, walked in, and gotten to Jesus. Their interest is lukewarm at best. And they're clogging up the pathway for hearts to be restored, for people to come and be healed. Due to the measured response of the people, they are creating a barrier of their own self. They are creating red tape that others have to walk through where mercy should be administered. They are damming up waters of justice when it should be flowing down like a river. They were just interested enough, that's their motivation, to come and risk nothing to become a barrier for those who actually needed Jesus. But then you have this paralyzed man and his friends. If the paralyzed man and his friends had been more like the conventional crowd, they never would have made it to Jesus. If they had just politely waited their turn, they may never have come to him before it was all over. If they had conformed to the social norms of that moment, but they saw conventional faith, they looked at it straight in the back <laughs> and thought, we have a goal to accomplish. And I'm willing to risk a few things in order to get there. We're gonna have to turn it up. If we just wait with these fools outside, we're not getting to Jesus. So they go beyond the normal faith. They step out into unreasonable behavior. They pass, get past the practical kind of response, the regular measured moderate status quo response. And they think, I gotta do something crazy. Because they had the motivation to overcome whatever it is that was at risk so that they could get this man healed. In their midst, they had both the man who needed healing and the people who were there who could have stepped away and said, look, this is your problem. I, I wasn't born paralyzed. I, I'm, I'm gonna go take care of my family. I, I've got all these things I could do and, and, and I'm not going to help you out. But instead they say, no, I'm not opting out of this man's pain. I am going to help them. You grab that corner, you grab that corner, you grab this one, I got this one. We're climbing this roof. And so this group of people who could have opted out decides that they are going to step in, shoulder the burden of this person's pain, enter into it, and help come up with the response, even though they might be considered unclean if they do, even though they are probably gonna end up having to pay for or patch that roof at some point in their life, right? 
even though they are gonna be socially ostracized, they together were desperate enough, were passionate enough, were faithful enough to do something outlandish, unreasonable, and impractical so they could get to Jesus. And amen. Because I guarantee you that paralyzed man got up and danced for the first time. As we respond to this story, what I want us to do is to consider what are the things or motivations we have or lack of motivation What is the risk? Is it too big that we can't get the motivation to overcome it? What is the outcome? Is it not quite drawing enough that it gets you to take the risk? Where are you at in your step of faith? And I I wanna broaden this. I, I want it to be very specifically to our racial reconciliation. Where are we not taking risks and being motivated to do the things to create the outcomes that we need? Uh, This has to be tied to that. That's what our church is about. But think about this on a personal level as well. I don't wanna dilute that, don't let that go. But God has probably asked you to do some things and because of your risk-averse behavior, you avoided it and didn't get the outcome. Or because you weren't angry enough at the bad situation, that holy righteous kind of anger to actually say, that's it, someone's gotta do something and it's not gonna be you, 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 or you, it's gonna be me. I'm doing something about this situation. Maybe you just needed the zeal to get over that risk, whatever thing might be coming against you so that you could reach your outcome. And so what I want you to do today is to be motivated. Take risks. I'm gonna celebrate that with you. I've been around a lot of people that didn't wanna celebrate the risks I was taking. I won't do that to you. And so let's step out in faith. Let's step out as people who have been called to do something. If you've been praying in the morning with us, thank you so much for being a part of that because we're asking God, what what do you want us to do? What risks do you want us to take? What outcomes do you want us to do? If you have been as a person, maybe you had a dream or a vision or a calling at some point in your life and you put it down and you walked away from it because the risk was too high, the cost-benefit analysis didn't work in your favor because you weren't actually believing in a God who could heal the man on the mat. And so here is a day for motivation to press forward, to engage. And if you haven't ever gotten to that place, maybe you're not desperate enough to have gotten yourself there. So let's see what God will do in 2023. Do you blank enough to blank in order to get whatever outcome God is putting in front of you. Because the last person we haven't talked about is the final person, the source of all things, Jesus Christ. He's in the room, he's the healer. His arms are wide open. He's saying, do it, take the risk, make the jump. I can do greater than you realize. I can do all kinds of things. And so I wanna pray for us all today in our hearing and ask God for those three things on behalf of you personally, on behalf of whatever family household you happen to be a part of, and on behalf of our church, what things do we need to gain greater motivation or risks must we take in order to achieve the outcomes God is asking? Pray with me. Jesus, thank you. Um, Thank you, Lord, for being a God who calls us to do things beyond what we thought we were capable of. Man, sometimes we look back and we're just excited, like I can't believe little me did that. Or maybe we're too highly thinking of ourselves and we realize that I couldn't have done that, it had to be God. So level us, Lord. 
draw us deeper into the risk. Maybe it's trying church out again for the first time in a long time. There's certainly risk to that. Maybe it's to pick up a calling or to accomplish a goal, to do something that God told you to do, but you talked yourself out of it. You believed a lie like Gideon, as opposed to Gideon who was called a mighty warrior, you believed a lie that you were the least of the least, and that's not true. So speak into this group calling, speak into this group anointing, speak into this group courage, boldness. God, speak into our church that we would faithfully be about this ministry of reconciliation, that we would not be the white moderate crowd. But that we would look back in history and see that we have appropriately shouldered the burden of any kind of minority people group. And Father, if we are in a place of burden ourselves, maybe there's a, a, a group of people that needs to come around us to help us, and they're missing out on their calling and it's not happening. So for the sake of all people involved, God, really the answer to the critic and the comfortable, complacent person, even the person on the mat and the crashers of the party, the end result, the answer of it all was always you, Jesus Christ. So draw us deeper. God, gaze at us. Correct us when we need correction. Rebuking courage when we need courage and boldness. Lord, we thank you for this right now and we ask for it powerfully in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Well, we're gonna go ahead and turn into our response time. As you consider the questions that have been posed to you at the end of um, the, the sermon, we just wanna give you a chance to lift up your voices and to sing today. If you have not gotten your elements, they're on the stations um, back behind you and you can grab the, the juice and the cracker there. There are ways to tithe here. We have the tithe and offering box and also um, online ways to give as well. Uh, let me read to you from our communion reading this morning from Matthew 26, 26 through 30. It says this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. After a moment of reflection, would you just lift your voices with us?